Grace and peace to you all, and welcome to the Calvary Road with Pastor Sam Allen. If those things you pray will never happen, do happen, and, and you know there's a pregnancy or there's something like that happens, listen, you wanna embrace your kids the way God embraces you. You wanna take them in the way God takes you in. Because listen, first of all, that grandchild, what does he or she have to do with the sin of your children? Nothing. As we move into the second chapter of the book of Luke, it feels like Christmas in September. Why? Because as we look at the first 20 verses of Luke 2, we're going to be looking at the birth of our Savior in a two-part message Pastor Sam has entitled just that, the birth of our Savior. So let's listen in. Luke 2, first 20 verses, the birth of our Savior. I'm sure many of you, just like me, can actually say this is a story we have known all our lives. From the very first memories I have of church and they go way back to my very youngest years all the way to age 16, I was in church pretty much every single Sunday. There were little lapses, but for the most part, first 16 years of my life, I was in church. So there was never a time I can recall when I didn't know that well, Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary or that he lived a sinless, spotless life or died a substitutionary sacrifice or rose again the third day or, or ascended into heaven and was coming again. I always knew it. I always believed it. And I thought that was enough to make me a Christian. Now, from age 16 to about 27, well, things kind of went uh, awry or, or, you know, I, I, there's no explaining it. I'm not blaming anyone. It was my own fault. But, but basically, I, I wish I could say at age 17, I gave my life to the Lord. And then here's what he did that first decade. That first decade for me didn't begin until I was 27. And, and so here's what happened. For over 10 years, I ran from the Lord. And here's one of the things I learned during the season where I was rebelling and resisting and running from the Lord and his plan for my life. You can't outrun him. He's real fast. And uh, he catches you. And when he catches you, he doesn't beat up on you because if he wanted to punish you, he'd just stop chasing you. I mean, that would be the ultimate punishment. Just let you go. Let you run. Let you have your way. But he runs and he catches us. And when he does, well, he cleanses us and he commissions us, and then he sends us out to share the message that's transformed us. We're going to see that's what happens with, well, some shepherds in our story this morning. The other thing I, I, I want to share is that if you, like me, have always known these things, perhaps you, like me, think, well, at least me back then, think, well, knowing these things is the same as being a Christian. But the reality is you can know everything about Jesus and still not have a relationship with Jesus. It's sort of like being a Christian stalker, if you know what I mean. It's like you're always looking, you're always hearing, you know you can talk about him, you've got all these details and facts on him, but you don't really have a relationship with him. Now, I'm praying that's not the case for any of you, but if it is your situation, you want to change that today. You should, before we close this service, you should say, Lord, I, I, I do believe and, and I do understand and I'm going to yield my life so I won't just say your Lord, 
but I'll let you be Lord of my life. Well, it came to pass, and here's the background for our story today. Came to pass in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Luke, remember, is a physician. He's very detailed. He told us in the first chapter that he wrote an accurate account of all things. And one of the things that you've got to take note of is that this is history, not mythology. Why does that matter to us? Well, because at the time this was written, there were all these stories about Zeus and about Atlas and Athenia and all these gods and goddesses, small g, because they didn't exist. They were the Greek gods and, and the Romans bought into them. But the, the issue here is, he wants us to know this isn't just mythology, this is actually history. Now, if you read commentaries, and those are just, you know, comments on the scriptures or background on the scriptures and on the language and the history, there are those who get into what's called higher criticism. They're very fond of trying to tear the Bible apart. They try to sit in judgment on the word rather than letting the word sit in judgment on them. And uh, these guys were very excited to, to see that, hey, this isn't exactly lining up. In other words, the time that he says Caesar Augustus calls for this registration and it had two uh, purposes. Everyone was to go to the place of their birth, the place from which they had hailed. And uh, it was to register in case they wanted them for military service or if they wanted to tax them. So this happened about every 14 years. And, and so we're told it was at the time of Caesar Augustus. All the world goes to be registered. And it happened while Quirinius was governing Syria. Well, historical records disagreed with Luke's dates. And so those who were like, see, the Bible's not true. See, you can't trust the Bible. Interesting, over the years, and especially in the latter half of the last century, well, they did a lot of uh, historical digs, a lot of excavations of that area uh, in the uh, Middle East. And, and it turns out that every time archaeology discovers something, it ends up confirming the word of God. Even if the people who are doing the digs are doing it because they don't believe the Bible and want to prove it's not true. And so uh, archaeology, very friendly to Christianity. It just bears witness a time and time again that, hey, in fact, this guy ruled two times and he was, in fact, governing Syria at the time. Everyone was required to go to his own city. Now, as far as how we get to this point historically, because this is a historical document, let me give you the two-minute background. Begins with creation, and then there's the fall, then there's the flood, then there's the Tower of Babel, and then there's a guy named Abraham. And God chooses Abraham so he can birth and bring forth a nation, Israel. And he uses Israel to birth and bring forth another man, our Lord, our Savior, our Messiah, Jesus, through whom he births and brings forth the church so he can have a witness to the world that all the world may know that there is, in fact, a God who made them and loves him and sent his son Jesus to suffer and die for him. Daniel later has the opportunity to interpret for Nebuchadnezzar, who's been very troubled by a dream. And then later on, that's in Daniel 2 and Daniel 7, he has his own vision, sees things from God's perspective. But he lays out that the Babylonian kingdom would be raised up and, and then they would be well, overcome by that Medo-Persian Empire, and then there'd be the Grecians, then there'd be the Romans. Each of these major kingdoms were ruled by, well, 
real men that were tyrants and thought, hey, this is my kingdom and this is what I've done. And there was no way they were thinking, hey, the Lord is in control and the Lord's got this plan. Although in each case, in Nebuchadnezzar's case, Daniel came and said, hey, here's what the Lord has said. And then we get the Cyrus when the Persians take over and Cyrus just happens to be mentioned in scripture. And the scroll is brought to him. It says it says right here, you're supposed to fund the rebuilding of the temple and send the people back. And, and so my point is this. God raises up these kingdoms and he uses them to, to put things together so he can accomplish his will. It's something going on independently of whatever they think they're going to accomplish and do. And he doesn't stop them from doing what they're doing. He just in the midst of it does what he wants to do. So what happens? Children of Israel are given the land of Israel. They didn't earn it. They didn't deserve it. And they didn't keep it because of their rebellion and disobedience. So he raises up the Assyrians and then the Babylonians. The Babylonians were used by God to discipline his rebellious people. And then the Medo-Persians were raised up by God to send the people back, provide for the building of the temple for the city and the city walls. After the Medo-Persians, the Greeks come to power. How does God use them? The Greeks were used by God to give the world a unifying language. 200 years plus before Christ, the entire Old Testament, which was Hebrew, was translated into the Greek language. Why? At that point in history and from then well into the life of Jesus and beyond, Greek was the language of the world, much the same as today English is. If you wanted to experience, say, Japan, I don't know if you're aware of this, but if you wanted to go to Japan and you didn't know, well, what would I do when I got there? You don't even have to be a teacher or a credentialed teacher. You could just go there and you can get a job teaching English because every Japanese family wants their children to know English. And pretty much this is happening worldwide. Why? English is the language of the world today. And I do think God has used that in, in amazing ways. But the point is, then it was Greek. Why? Because God wanted to make sure when his son came on the scene and the message was sent out that there would be an easy path as far as language to transmit the good news that the Messiah, the Savior, our Lord had come and laid down his life for us and rose again the third day. Well, then we come to the Romans and, and they're known for all their brutality. They're known for their crucifixions. They're known for a lot of things. But you know what they contributed to this whole process? They built the roads that made it easier for the, the children of God to get the message from one place to another. And, and we take all that for granted. I mean, we have this interstate system, you know. And in fact, we're at such an odd point in time. We can get on an airplane and, and uh, take a 17-hour flight and end up somewhere like India or, or a 17-hour flight and get somewhere like Jerusalem. And we can actually complain about how difficult the 17 hours on the plane was. Man, you had to buy the peanuts and it's like, you know, it's like so laborsome. People used to get on a ship and they didn't even know if they'd make it across and it would take months to get there and then they would come back and didn't know if they would make it back. So the point is the roads that Rome built facilitated the movement of the people that would preach the gospel. And all I'm saying and sharing all of that is that God is always working behind the scenes. And that's exactly what we see happening here. The question many have asked is, well, did God move Caesar to move everyone so that 
Joseph and Mary could get from Nazareth, the 70 plus miles to Bethlehem, so Jesus could fulfill the prophecy of Micah 5 2. 700 years before Jesus' birth, the prophet Micah had recorded that the Messiah, the Savior, would be born in Bethlehem. And these guys are getting near the end of uh, Mary's pregnancy. It's near time for her to deliver and they're just kind of hanging around Nazareth. And so some say, well, God, it was simple. All he did is he moved on Caesar. Others will say, no, it was just the time when all that was about to happen anyway. Here's why that really doesn't matter to us. If it was the first, well, that speaks to God's omnipotence. It's a word that's in scripture. A lot of the newer translations have substituted something far less, you know, glorious as far as a word. If you think, well, omnipotent, who uses it in conversation? Well, usually we don't. But the deal is, it's, it's a powerful word. It's a theological term that we just need to learn. It speaks to the fact that God is all powerful, almighty, that there's nothing he can't do. And so it would be easy for him to get, to move on, Caesar, to move everyone so he could get Joseph and Mary from point A to point B. It's equally possible that God just knew the census would come up. He knows all things. It's called his omniscience. It means he knows the future and he controls the future. And so, so it doesn't really matter because either way, God certainly told us 700 years before it happened that it would happen. And then we read, it happened. And so it, it just speaks to the fact that God knows the future, that God controls the future. How he does that, he doesn't have to explain to us, but we can clearly see that's what's up. Well, Joseph, we read, went up from Galilee, verse 4, out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. Now, the details surrounding his birth are sometimes surprising. And, and if you've ever wondered, and I'm certain at least some of you have, well, why didn't God do it differently? I mean, couldn't God have just spoken to Joseph through a burning bush and said, hey, Joseph, have you read Micah 5 too lately? My kid needs to get to Bethlehem to be born. God could have done that because he's done it in the past. He could have spoken to him directly. He's done that in the past. He could have sent him Gabriel. He'd met Gabriel just months earlier. And Gabriel could have told him, hey, you need to get to Bethlehem. He could have done those things, but he didn't do any of those things. And if you ever wonder, well, why didn't he make reservations? I mean, didn't he know moving everybody's going to cause a scene and there's not going to be enough? Couldn't he have sent word ahead? Hey, my son's about to be born. I'd like him to have the finest suite in Bethlehem. And, and of course, God could have done that. But God didn't do any of those things. And the reason he didn't do them is given to us in Isaiah 55, 8. Many of you are familiar with it, where God says, My thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways your ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. What's God saying? He's saying, I'm a lot smarter than you. And, uh, you know, I know what I'm doing and you don't. And, when, and, and I believe that there's a double meaning to that. It's like, we don't know what he's doing. We don't even know what we're doing. 
but he knows exactly what he's doing. So he has this plan. And when you get to the actual birth itself and you see the circumstances surrounding it in a few moments, you'll realize that the place where Jesus is born is much more fitting for the presentation God intended than if he'd been in a little room back in some inn somewhere. Well, there is something else. It says they went up to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Bethlehem, three things I want to share related to this city. First, the rule of first mention. It's not a Bible rule. It's not something the Bible says we must do or need to do, but I encourage you to do it anyway, because here's what I found. Oftentimes, whether it's a person or a place or an event, the first mention of that person or place or event will be a key to unlocking something wonderful related to, well, any of those. And, and Bethlehem certainly does meet that criteria. It's in Genesis 35, 18, where we read of a birth and a death. It's the birth of little Benjamin and, and it's the death of his mom at that point. But my point is this, if I just told you a birth and a death, first mention of Bethlehem, it reminds us, at least for me, those dots are automatically connected that, that this one born of the Virgin Mary was born to serve and suffer and die. That he said, I came not to be served, but to serve and give my life a ransom for many. That was his mission. That was the plan. That's why he came. And so this first mention, it, it sort of is a foreshadowing, if you will. It points ahead to, to the reality that birth and death tied to Bethlehem. We also know that this is the city where Ruth, meets Boaz, Boaz, the kinsman redeemer, one who was related by blood, one who was able to redeem, one who was willing to redeem. It's a glorious picture of our Lord and Savior becoming flesh, taking upon himself not just the form of man, but truly becoming one of us, thus the necessity of the birth, the incarnation. And so we, we see this glorious picture of the kinsman redeemer. It all happens in the city of Bethlehem. And I highly recommend the CDs or tapes of the study of Ruth. Well, then there's one more thing. There are actually many more, but this one way cool as well. The word Bethlehem itself means city of or house of bread. And that's a wonderful picture for the one who comes in and John 6 says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. He who eats this bread will live forever. No, he's not talking about the bread or the cracker that we share in communion. He's talking about partaking of him, though, in that same way. You understand, of course, because we all study nutrition. That's why we're all so fit and healthy. Um, that when you eat something, it is broken down and it becomes an actual part of you. The, the nourishment that we gain from that is really a part of us. Well, he's saying in the same way, it gets beyond and it goes back to my introduction. It gets beyond knowing about him to actually partaking of him, letting him be a part of us and, and us really living in him and him living through us. Well, that's exactly what the house of bread is about. Jesus, the bread of life who came down from heaven. Well, so it was while they were there, verse 6, the days were completed for her to be delivered. She brought forth her firstborn son, 
No reason to make any big deal of it, but that word firstborn ordinarily would apply or imply other born children. But in any case, uh, firstborn son, and then it says she wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now, we still wrap newborns like this, and, and there are three reasons for it. Warmth, protection, and security. But there's a fourth in this particular scenario. They were wrapping him and then putting him into a manger. And in verse 12, when we get to it, it will be a sign to those who first come to see that the Messiah has been born. It will be a sign to them. Well, a, a newborn wrapped like that, in and of itself, no big sign. They did that to all the newborns. But a newborn wrapped like that in a manger... And by the way, the manger, in case in your mind, because of all the nativity scenes, you know, you got them by the fireplace mantle or on the television or, or you know, they put them up around town. They're usually a wooden structure, not in Israel. In Israel, a manger ordinarily would have been a cave. In fact, if you visit Israel, they'll take you and say, this is the cave. Well, not our guides. They'll say, this is a cave like the cave because our guides know that nobody knows where those caves are or which caves were what. And, but they take us out and they say, this is what it would have been like. The, the manger itself isn't the, the place where he was born. It's the little feeding trough where they placed him. And so the, the picture here is they, they, they took him uh, you know, she she births him. He's wrapped in those swaddling cloths. He's laid in a manger because there was no room for them at the end. Now, this is a little strange if you think it through with me for a moment. Here's why. If everyone had to go to the city of their birth and if both Joseph and Mary, and it turns out to be true, were descendants of David, they had to both go to Bethlehem anyway and all of their family would have had to go there too. Now, I'm thinking they had to have some family. I mean, and, and it's strange if you think about it that, that none of the family apparently took them in, was either willing or able to take them in. I think our family right now, there's, if we all got together, the living relatives, 35, 40 people, something like that. There are families in this church that are more like 100 people. And it's just generation after generation. Hey, ask Jamie about it. I mean, he's got his mom and then his grandma and his great grandma. And then, his, you know, there's kids. There's, it's just a big family, his alone. But, but the, the deal is, and my point is, it's possible and I'm saying possible. I'm not saying thus saith the Lord. This is how it is. It's possible their families had shunned them and were unwilling to take them in because they just didn't buy the whole virgin birth story. And, and, and really think it through for a moment. As godly of a woman as they knew Mary to be and, and as godly of as a man as they hoped Joseph actually was, it just would be a little hard. And I'm not sure that they even tried to explain to the family. Would you? I mean, would you be like, hey, I know this looks bad, but the good news is it's God's child. You know, it's, it's just so odd of an experience that there's no real basis to, to explain it. And, and so it's possible. And here's why I think it, it could have really been. Because in that day, to have a child when you were unmarried, to, to be pregnant when you were unmarried, it brought shame to the family. It's a concept we've almost lost touch with in the 21st century and really the latter part of the 20th, it was beginning to happen. But, but in their culture, if you sinned, that brought shame to you, but it also brought shame on your entire family. 
And so it's possible that they just didn't want to host them. They didn't want them to be, they didn't want that child to be born in that home. And I would encourage you, if those things you pray will never happen, do happen, and, and you know, there's a pregnancy or there's something like that happens, listen, you want to embrace your kids the way God embraces you. You want to take them in the way God takes you in. Because, listen, first of all, that grandchild, what does he or she have to do with the sin of your children? Nothing. And, and, and uh, if, if things don't start right, that doesn't mean they can't end up right. And our job is to be about the ministry of reconciliation. We never do that by shunning someone because we're ashamed of what they've done. We can only reconcile people to God and to us by reaching out and extending ourselves and, and taking some things sometimes. Over the years, I have watched way too many families torn asunder by sin. Not sin against each other necessarily, but the sinful choice of a child driving a wedge between them and their parents who simply cannot seem to deal with the sin. Unforgiveness by the parents is going to do nothing to draw the child back to the Lord. As a matter of fact, it has the opposite effect and many times it pushes them away. Now we're told in Matthew 6.15, if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. That's pretty straightforward. So this unforgiveness towards our children who sin not only affects our children, but also it messes up our relationship with God. The Calvary Road is a ministry of Calvary Chapel Chico, and you can visit our website, ccchico.com, or download the CC Chico app to contact us and listen to other studies from Pastor Sam. You can also listen to The Calvary Road as a daily podcast by visiting thecalvaryroad.com. We'd love to hear from you. And until next time, may you find grace and peace as your journey takes you down the Calvary Road. And your grace.